I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Joseph, on Sunday morning, May 21st, you tweeted, and I quote, brings me no joy to report that the media pendulum has swung way too far on Michael Block, hoping the broadcast focuses on players with a legitimate chance of winning. Less than six hours later, Michael Block made a hole-in-one on the par 3 15th hole at the PGA Championship. Joseph, will you apologize? You're you're starting this episode by turning the people against me. This is a tough... (laughs) Tough jumping off point, the the hill that I have to die on. But um, Garrett, when he made that hole in one, was that to win? <laughs> to win our hearts. Uh, clearly. I mean, if, you, <laughs> if you're reading any social media or listening to the broadcast, it's one of the greatest shots in the history of golf, and it couldn't have happened to a more deserving individual. I mean, I was expecting them to say something like, like Michael Block's the type of guy that I want to marry my daughter. <laughs> that That was the level that we were at on Sunday. And and to be honest, if there were enough cameras around, he'd probably think about doing it. My goodness. I really have turned the people against you already in this episode. I didn't realize that your hatred went this deep. I thought that you were going to take this opportunity to back off, apologize, and just let people enjoy it. But no, that doesn't seem to be the case. Look, it's not really a Michael Block take, though he's very camera aware. This is more about how (laughs) the media runs every good story into the ground and just beats it over and over again until we're sick of it. So uh, yeah, I know a little, little cynical here. So I, I apologize to people if they're already you know turned against me now, but I do stand behind that. I think it was a little much. Well, I have to admit, I have to come clean in the company Slack on Saturday. Maybe it was, yeah, it was Saturday. It was Saturday. So there were some things going on on the golf course that were significant when the broadcast went back to another walk and talk interview with Michael Block on the 14th hole, I was like, yeah, you know, I've had enough. I think this is enough. He seems like a really nice guy. And this is a great story. It really is a uniquely PGA championship story. It's the, it's the thing that can happen at this major that can't happen at any other major, but they, they really seized it. You could see the, the media apparatus kind of starting to gather momentum and man, when he made that hole in one on 15, it extended the story a few beats longer than I thought it would. And it seemed to justify the focus on him earlier in the week. And and so uh, it, it's a tough hill to die on right now. But I think that when we get four weeks from now and he's getting more and more exemptions into PGA Tour events, that there are going to be probably more people starting to to side with you. Uh, but we'll see. It, it was a, a lovely, lovely moment on the yes. 15th tee. I think even you would have to uh, I, uh, would have to admit that. It was cool. It was cool. Right. We're more on the like I texted Andy and Brennan. He's going to start getting sponsors exemptions. And then he started getting sponsors exemptions like mm. that. That is the part that was a little bit much about the story. It's not really a Michael Block thing. All right. You're listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. That is Joseph Lamagna. And today we are discussing takeaways from the 2023 PGA Championship at Oak Hill. 
We're going to talk about the winner, Brooks Kepka, as well as the two other players who had a chance to win, Victor Hovland and Scotty Scheffler. We're also going to give our final thoughts on the venue at Oak Hill Country Club. So let's start with Kepka. What was his edge this week? I'm so impressed with Brooks Kepka. Like I, I think of any golfer that I've been trying to predict in my life, he's the one I've gotten wrong the most. I finally maybe got wise to it in 2023 where I've just been high Brooks Kepka because I've learned my lesson in 2017, 2018, 2019. Brooks is so tactical, surgical with his iron play, powerful player, disciplined. He's a gamer and he shows up like he just knows when he's going into the round what he's about to do. And there's something pretty mesmerizing about watching him pick a part of golf course. I know this is a point that's been emphasized probably on the fried egg pod, definitely on the shotgun start pod. Like when a golfer makes something look really boring, that's about as high of a compliment as you can pay a golfer. And Brooks does that. He's, he's just surgical. What do you think his key shot was in the final round? I don't know. I mean, I think. Was it just an accumulation? Because that's yeah, what it is with Brooks Kepka. He doesn't. It, it, it's not like he does things that are like super spectacular. I think probably a couple moments. One that sticks out to me was saving Bogey on number six. So after yes. hitting that drive out right into the creek, that the wheels could have come off there maybe a little bit, and it's just very Brooks to not let that happen. I think the other moment for me was stuffing the, the wedge on two. Uh, mm-hmm just kind of making it clear from the beginning that he was dialed in. And obviously the masters didn't quite go his way. He didn't bring anything in the final round. And I think starting off on a good foot this past Sunday, stuffing that wedge in on two and making birdie kind of set the tone pretty early. A lot of people would point to the bunker shot from the fried egg lie on 11. There is some argument as to whether it was really that hard of a shot. And, and he, uh, you know, he, he ended up making bogey in any case. It's not like he, right. he got it within inches. Um, but you know, that was certainly a moment that people were impressed with. I also wrote down the bogey save on number six. So he pushed his drive into Allen's Creek and ended up taking a drop on the other side of Allen's Creek from the green. And there's a tree blocking the green from that angle. So he was hitting out of pretty thick rough. It wasn't like super trampled down rough or anything. He was, he was dropping his ball in legitimate Oak Hill PGA championship rough and hitting a mid to long iron out of it over a tree from a bad angle and he hit it to 25 feet, 30 feet or so. It was, it was 45 feet. I just pulled up the shot trail. Feet. but okay. even, It was it past was, the hole. It, it landed just in the right spot. And because he couldn't get any spin on the shot, obviously. And so it ran well past the hole. But that's within sort of the, the circle of lag putting friendship for Brooks Kepka. You know he's going to two putt from there. And that shot was just unbelievable. That's such a hard shot. Crazy shot. And if I remember correctly, when he hit it, he was like, sit down a little bit. And it was 45 feet long. Like, yeah. he's so dialed that he knew exactly where that ball was going. He has so much control over his irons. Like, Brooks Kepka's a, a generational ball striker. 
do you have any <laughs> do you have any predictions? It's tricky with Brooks because obviously his his body is an issue. We forget that because he looks healthy right now. But a guy who has had knee problems, leg problems in the past is probably going to have them in the future. Do you see him reeling off multiple more majors? Yeah, I, I think I think three more is pretty conceivable. He's 33. Let's say another six years of really strong golf and picking off one every other year seems quite reasonable to me. So if he ends his career at eight or nine majors, I would not be surprised. At the same time, right? We know how golf is. If he never wins one again, it shouldn't surprise anybody. Like that happens all the time. So I I think eight majors is, is very well within reach. Eight majors, I'm looking this up right now, would put Brooks in the league of Tom Watson. Gary Player and Ben Hogan are at nine. That's the kind of rarefied company that Brooks Kepka seems to be headed toward. And, you know, what makes him such a difficult player to understand is that his form in regular events, which are for him live golf events, really doesn't mean anything when it comes to predicting how he's going to do in a major because he is so outrageously better in major championships than he is in regular events. Yeah. I think it's why I've gotten Brooks so wrong in like 2017, 2018 era, because I didn't really necessarily believe in players like that who can just turn it on in majors and show nothing leading up to it. But I actually think he probably gets bored with some of the standard PGA tour setups now live setups and when he gets to a major he actually wants to turn it on he knows people are watching he likes going to other sporting events right he likes going to big nba games like i think he likes the feeling of being a big game hunter and at at some point it becomes hard to deny that that's what's happening so i I think that's what's happening do you, you think that's what it is that it's really that kind of romantic narrative of the guy who can step up in big moments is there another explanation that we can look for for his sort of outperformance in the four majors? I think it's a couple things. I think major championship setups allow him to hit more demanding shots that separate himself more from some of the other players who, I mean, you're not going to TPC Summerlin's not really giving you the same opportunities to step up and hit some of these pure iron shots. And it doesn't demand the same quality of play. I also think those events probably get a little bit boring for Brooks. Like, why am I here? What does a win mean? Versus a major championship, we all know what that means. So it's not unique to Brooks, right? Tigers talked about only caring only caring about major championship trophies. I just think we're in a championship-oriented mindset, especially true for Brooks. Not true for everybody, but I think it's true for a lot of fans. Yeah, but, you know, Tiger <laughs> played really well. In regular PGA Tour events, so much so that he won the most of them ever, aside from Sam Snead, who's a lot of whose wins are maybe not ones that we should necessarily count as full PGA Tour events, but I don't want to open up that can of worms. Tiger was great no matter what the event was. His competitiveness wasn't selective. It seemed to kick in whenever he was playing a golf event, whether it was a major or you know, I would imagine he was incredibly competitive in normal money games that he played at medalist or whatever. Brooks seems to have a competitiveness that is selective or a focus that is selective. And he summons it at these four majors. Now, 
I think I would also point out that his five majors have all come at the PGA Championship and the U.S. Open. And those tournaments, especially recently, have had pretty similar setups. Shinnecock Hills, Aaron Hills, okay, <laughs> you know, those were his U.S. Opens. Those were maybe not typical U.S. Open setups. And so maybe this take isn't as ironclad as, uh, as, as I wish it were. But the fact that he has won only PGA Championships and U.S. Opens, do you think that's significant? And do you think that tells us something about those tournaments? Honestly, no, because I'm a huge course setup person, but Brooks had a very good chance of winning the 2019 Masters. He had a very good chance of winning the 2023 Masters. Yep. He's won at Scottsdale, a little bit of a different test, pretty significant iron test. You actually can't, you can't really spray it out there. You could spray it at Oak Hill. So Brooks has shown that he can do it on a, a variety of courses. Open championships, you got to be on the right side of a draw often. Like there's just a little more variance involved and that's maybe a little bit of a different style but i wouldn't be surprised if brooks is in contention at an open championship either so for some players i agree and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit with somebody like rory but i think rory's best chances are going to be at setups like this at oak hill i I don't feel as much that way about somebody like brooks kepka why do you feel that way about rory rory really does spray the golf ball with, with driver and a setup like this really allows him to freewheel a little bit off of the tee. Sure, I don't want to jump too far ahead. Maybe we're getting into Oak Hill in a little bit. But at Oak Hill, you could have wide misses. And the fairways were so narrow that very rarely were you actually hitting the fairway. So it just allows you to bomb and as long as you're not blocking yourself out with trees, you're kind of just ripping driver. At Augusta, you can't do that. Like if you flare one way out right, you're getting deeper and deeper into the trees. Gets a little more tricky to save par, bogey. Oak Hill was a freewheel. You see Bryson doing well. You see Rory doing well. I think Bryson and Rory will tend to do well at similar majors over the next couple of years. The Torrey Pines type setups where, again, you, you have a lot of room off the tee and you don't have like these penalty hazards lining the fairways with the exception of hole six and sort of seven it just allows you to be much more aggressive off of the tee get a little more creative i think dog legs right like holes four 17 and 18 those set up really well for players like rory and bryson so i, I don't expect rory to have a ton of success at augusta lacc i think he's got some course management issues and some shot selection issues that he's got to work through otherwise he'd be right there but Brooks doesn't, I don't have that concern as much. Well, let's get into that a little bit with Rory. You know, I want to jump quickly to Victor Hovland and Scotty Scheffler, who were truly in contention where Rory wasn't. But what were Rory's issues with course management and shot selection this week, especially when you compare him to somebody who was playing like Brooks Kepka did? Look, people give a lot of different explanations for Rory, like, Maybe he's not mentally in it, whatever. I'm going to stay consistent, have the same conversation we had in 2022 after the Open Championship. I think 90 plus percent of Rory's issues are shot selection. People are going to focus a lot on the layup iron shot on seven off the tee that went into the water. That was not good, right? That's, that's reflective of some course management issues a little bit, but I take much more issue with the wedge shot on hole two on Sunday where he's got like 130 yards from the middle of the fairway, tries to peel this little like 
sweepy fade into the front right location. Short sides himself has no chance. Doesn't really have that. Doesn't have a great look at par. Makes bogey. Other players make birdies there. If you watch what Brooks Kepka did there, what Victor Hovland did, what Scotty Scheffler, they're not hitting these sweepy fades where they're trying to get it right next to the hole. They're aiming a little bit left, hitting their stock fade in there. And if it goes a little right and gets close to the hole, excellent. But this is the same conversation that we had. I remember talking about at St. Andrews, I think this is Friday round, part 311 at St. Andrews. He tried mm-hmm. to hit, Rory tried to hit this massive draw from like 180 yards, started at like 30 yards right of the flag, ends up flaring it out right, making bogey. So people can talk about like strokes gained approach, strokes gained putting there, but there's some strokes gained shot selection. And I think that's what my biggest issue is always is with Rory is just being a little bit too clever, trying to strive for perfection too much. Whereas other players like Scheffler, Hovland, Kepka, they're taking those stock shots into conservative targets. And if Rory did that, I'm very confident he'd start hoisting some major championship trophies. That shot on the second hole killed me. I mean, he he had just birdied one, stuck it to inches on his approach, seemed to, you know, have that feeling of making a charge. Now, I'm not sure that he ever could have gotten to minus nine. You know, he started the day at minus one, I believe, and got to two with that birdie at one. But as soon as he, you know, from the middle of the fairway after a perfect tee shot on two, short-sighted himself to that pin i was like this is this is not happening it just doesn't seem like he has the right mentality now maybe there's a possibility that he was aiming at the fat side of the green and just hit an incredible push i don't want to assume that i know what he intended to do there but it just seems really unlikely i think that you're right that he was trying to feed a cute little fade into that front right pin and he just pushed it five, 10 yards and short-sighted himself. And it was a shot that he should not have attempted. And that kind of stuff is really frustrating with Rory because this is an extremely intelligent individual and such a talented golfer. But he does seem to have a little bit of a weakness when it comes to shot selection in big moments where it's clear that his mentality is winner go home. I'm going to attack pins. And if I miss, then it wasn't meant to be. But I think that he probably could back in to a few more wins than he does. Definitely. And for a little context here, the when he went into the creek on number seven off of the tee, ends up making bogey there, loses about a half of a shot to the field. And not many guys are making birdies there. It's a, it's a mistake, but that's a, a demanding, tricky tee shot. I, I kind of write that off as a little bit fluky. Still not good. But when you make bogey on number two, you're giving up over a shot to the field. You're giving two shots up to the leaders who all made birdie there. So that's a costly one. And I think the misconception with some of this conservative conservatism, like be conservative on your targets, is that that people like me are arguing that you will that it. I think people think you won't make as many birdies that way, but that's actually not true. You're going to stumble into a lot of birdies that way. So it's not true that 
once you're down and you're chasing, you need to start attacking all of the pins. You can be conservative on your approach targets and you're still going to make a lot of birdies. And you're going to avoid all those sloppy bogeys. So if I'm positive, positive, if Rory adopted a little bit more of a modern philosophy around course management and shot selection, he'd be hanging with the guys that are beating him consistently. It's not a talent issue. It's a mindset. Like It is a course management shot selection issue. All right. Let's touch on Hovland and Scheffler. Maybe just a quick takeaway for each. So Hovland, he was part of the main story of Sunday. For most of the day, the story was the duel between Kepka and Hovland. Then the 16th hole came around and Hovland got into an issue with the fairway bunker there. Double bogeyed that hole when Kepka birdied it, ended up losing by two. But he hung in there for a while on Sunday. It wasn't the same sort of fading away act that he did at St. Andrews where he just wasn't a factor. He was a factor. And so what's your main takeaway for Hovland this week, positive or negative? Very positive. I follow Victor Hovland pretty closely. I'm pretty... He he and Scotty Scheffler tend to play some of the best course management, have the best approach to their games. So I, I always watch their targets and how they play golf courses very closely. I think with Victor Hovland, what I've noticed this year, the ball striking's been incredible, like it normally is. And the, the challenges have been on these tight lie chips. So at Augusta, really this, this year, the firmest day was Sunday. And there were a couple short game shots where Victor just can't clip it and, and spin it like some of the other players and have as much control versus somebody like Scotty Scheffler. So the thick rough kind of protected Victor from some of those touchy short game shots. It's a it different very- technique. It's, it's a hack. And we saw him hit a couple of really good ones on Sunday with that technique. Yeah, and I'll also give him credit. His sand game was much better than I expected it to be. He hit some brilliant bunker shots from around the greens. Yes, he did. Yeah, some, some hop-hop-stop kind of bunker shots, for sure. Like, about he hit a couple of the best short game shots of anyone I saw this week, and I was watching a lot of the tournament. So I think for Victor Hovland, he's going to have a lot of major championship success it's just going to be a matter of can he even contend in some of the setups that are going to demand some of those tricky short game shots off tight lies like LACC and Augusta when it's not soft, but incredibly impressed with him. Like he's, he's such a good player. He's a top 10 player in the world and he's a gamer. Like he's now shown up for the last three majors. We'll, we'll see what his major championship career ends up looking like. I have some concerns about the short game, but overall very impressed. He hung in there. I don't think the shot on 16 was a mental error. Like at that point, he's trying to win, probably caught it a lot of, a little bit thin, three holes to go. Like he hung in there and then yeah. stepped up and birdied 18 to get into a tie for second. So very impressed with Victor. Scotty Scheffler shot 65 on Sunday to get to T2. What's your takeaway from his week? I mean, it's it was just kind of a weird week for him. With Scotty, I, I just expect him to play well everywhere. I really do. He's got one of the best approaches mentally to the sport. Hits it long off of the tee, has a game plan, has world-class short game, good iron player. The, the question mark's always the putter. He didn't make anything over 15 feet this week and was still in it. He hasn't finished worse than 12th this year. He's been dominant in major championships, did well in the Ryder Cup. Like You just need to expect Scotty Scheffler to play well everywhere for now. And it, it's incredibly impressive. Like I, who are you? There aren't many golfers you're taking ahead of Scotty Scheffler. I'd probably make him the favorite 
at LACC. It'd be between him, Rom, and Brooks, frankly. Scotty's incredible. Like, there's, there's not a whole lot to say about Scotty, which I think is, is a testament to how good of a golfer he is. There aren't these glaring weaknesses. And he was talking about hole six, which we've already talked about. The Got a creek down the side, mm-hmm. really hard hole, played almost a stroke over par a couple of the rounds. Scotty talked about that hole. And he was like, yep, the target is just a little left to the center of the fairway, just kind of a little bit right of the left edge of the fairway. Like he, He's so tactical. He's got the game plan. He's got the modern strategy. Not somebody you want to be betting against much for the rest of his career. The putting was sort of the story this week with him. He did make one – I looked at this. He did make one putt over 15 feet, and it 18. was a 15-foot – nine inch putt on 18 uh, on on sunday his 72nd hole he made his longest putt of the week which was 15 feet nine inches for a birdie and no uh, you know he made a couple of like 14 13 foot range putts over the course of the week but no bombs and so the putts weren't falling from long range lip outs which he was talking about after the round i lipped out a couple of putts that I thought were going to go in on, on the ninth hole. There was another one earlier in the round. And so he was a little frustrated with that. But I wonder with Scotty, considering how solid his total game is, I wonder if he's going to start to get in a place where he can win majors while putting at a fairly mediocre level. You know, he wasn't bad this week on the greens. He wasn't like one of the worst putters in the field. He was 35th strokes gained. But he had that nine holes on Saturday, the the front nine, he was four over. He just had a bad nine holes. And I think that that was the tournament there for him. So I wonder if he's going to get to a place where he can start taking down majors without having some of those longer putts go in. I don't think Scotty necessarily has like this jump that he has to make. In 2022, Scotty was incredible the first half of the year, not as good the second half of the year. And it was basically all his putter. So he might be subject to a little bit of a streaky putter. Who isn't, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jordan Spieth was the best putter in the world for a couple of years and then had this massive downswing. Like that happens. Putting comes and goes. But I will take Scotty Scheffler. I would take him against anybody at LACC and a lot of golf courses like that. So yeah, extremely high on Scheffler. He's, you're, you're right. Like, the putter wasn't exceptional this past week, and he still had a chance to win. The same thing happened at Augusta. He couldn't make a putt this year, and he still finished, what was he, T7? So looking forward to LACC, you know, you, you mentioned Scotty, Brooks, and who else? Rom. Rom. Those are, those are your guys going into that week. Anybody else anywhere near the level of those three for LACC specifically? I think Xander Shoffley belongs in that conversation. I think Patrick Cantlay belongs in that conversation. I know that people will roll their eyes like Sander never gets it done. Like just don't don't count either of those golfers out at LACC. So those would be my top five. I, I wouldn't frankly I wouldn't put Rory in there for some of the reasons I've already kind of alluded to. Have some concerns about some of the shot selection, which can come back to bite you if you short side yourself in some of these locations at LACC. But more than that, it's the way that that golf course will penalize some errant tee shots kind of around the perimeters of your dispersion pattern so there are some holes out there you can't really spray it and i think rory will feel a little constrained by that okay um a couple of players who played decently this week and maybe didn't get an awful lot of coverage cameron smith was t9 
he had a great last day and that's why he was T nine, but he's still there in the top, in the top 10, Patrick Cantlay, whom he mentioned T nine and, uh, Xander Schauffele T 18, you know, not a mile away. So a lot of these players are, are playing pretty well. Uh, Patrick Reed is also kind of lurking and somebody that I don't know, might, might be pretty effective at LACC. We'll see, you know, we, we've got a lot of guys sort of in that tier that doesn't get a lot of attention on the telecast, but obviously elite players and uh, could round into form in time for for LACC. It's interesting you brought up Patrick Reed because I was really impressed with what I saw from him this past week on a golf course that I I didn't expect to suit him particularly well. (laughs) No. And he also finished top 10 at Augusta. I would not be surprised to see him in the mix at LACC, which is kind of Augusta-like. Same with Cameron Smith. So if you're interested in seeing those characters at the highest level, I think LACC is going to be an opportunity for both of them to thrive. I will not say the same of Bryson for the same reasons as Rory. If Bryson makes that cut, I'd be surprised. (laughs) Okay. All right. Some things to look forward to for sure. All right. Let's take a quick break here, Joseph. And when we come back, we'll talk about what we made of Oak Hill this past week. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Mizzen in Maine. Let's be honest, no one gets excited about wearing dress shirts. They're boring, uncomfortable, and stiff. Mizzen in Maine dress shirts are the exact opposite, though. They're as comfortable as your favorite t-shirt and fashionable enough to wear anywhere. You'll see one hanging in your closet and genuinely get excited to put it on and head to work. And I can tell you that as someone who works from home, I love Mizzen and Main dress shirts because they're comfortable enough to wear around the house, but when I get on a video call, which I often do, I look like I have it together. Plus, Mizzen and Main makes more than just work clothes. If they can make a dress shirt comfortable, imagine what they can do with polos, pants, shorts, pullovers, and t-shirts. If you're wondering how people wear Mizzen and Main outside the office, you might have seen a few professional golfers wearing it on TV this past week, including Sepp Straka, who finished T7. Mizzen and Main is comfortable and it performs, which is really all you want out of your clothing. So here's the deal for Fried Egg listeners. If you use code FRIEDEGG at MizzenandMain.com, you can get $35 off any purchase of $125 or more. That's code FRIEDEGG, all one word, at MizzenandMain.com. All right, Joseph, let's talk about the venue, Oak Hill Country Club. We discussed it pretty in-depth in the run-up to the PGA Championship, but now we've actually seen the course in action. So first of all, what were some of the positives that you took away from Oak Hill this week? Let's start there, because I know that there are some critiques, and we'll get to those, but what did you like? I thought the approach shots played interestingly. I... I apparently was it an episode of the shotgun start maybe where Andy and Brendan were talking about how a staple of Andrew Green's restorations is going to be he believes that you need to hit like a hybrid or a a super long iron into at least one par three I I think they made some uh reference to that mindset and so I thought hole 11 was really fun to watch this past week I like the idea 
of a player having a hybrid in his hands, some kind of wood or a long iron. So that was really refreshing to watch. Thought holes six and seven had a lot of character. I don't have a ton of positive things to say about many of the other holes, but I was impressed with, I guess, both the fact that the approach shots were demanding, but you could hit the greens and then short-siding yourself in some locations was a legitimate penalty. That was less true on the weekend once it got a little damp and soft, but I have some positive things to say. I, I guess one thing I tweeted, which I stand by, is it, like it's a pretty good version of a bad style of golf is how the, the way I feel about it. <laughs> when it's firm. When it was when it was firm. Yeah. And then once it got soft, a little bit less so. What did you think? Well, I agree about the approach shots. And I think that the reason the approach shots were pretty interesting this week is because of the green expansions. These greens at Oak Hill had shrunk to circles and there weren't the same kind of edge pin positions that would sort of float over hazards and be really close to runoffs and ledges and, you know, creeks in a couple of cases. And so I thought that the green expansions were incredibly successful. I think it's the most important thing that Andrew Green does consistently at his renovated and restored courses. You'll also see this at Inverness, right? And so I was I was very encouraged by that. I thought that it proved that enlarging greens actually increases the challenge for major championship golf, which is a huge realization that so many clubs have come to recently and more clubs need to come to. Finding these little fingers of the greens allows you to put pins in really hairy, challenging places. It rewards good ball striking, and it also gives you a little bit more green area for amateurs to work with. So it's one of those things that makes it more challenging for pros and less challenging for amateurs. I think it would be interesting to drill in on this. Something I haven't thought a ton about until this week. When you have super tucked pins, it's important to think about how that interacts with players' dominant strategies being conservative and playing away from those targets. And the more you tuck a pin and make short-sighted locations even more difficult, the less players are going to attack them. So I think you had a dynamic this week where as long as you weren't blocked out by a tree, you were kind of fine in the rough. It was almost impossible to hit the fairway. But even if you did hit the fairway or if you found the rough, no matter how wide it was, you weren't really attacking many of those pins. So it kind of led to a dynamic where everyone's playing into the same locations and you're just making a lot of pars. So I think that's one counterpoint sort of to consider with tucking pins i'm all for the green expansion and having more interesting pins but if you had more width and you could actually allow players to play from appropriate lies and and have a good lie in the fairway you might bait them into taking on some of those tricky pins but if everyone's playing from the rough they're not gonna attack any of those tucked pins so it's something i I mean i 100 agree that in order to find the full potential of these green expansions and these new interesting pin positions you have to widen the fairways And it's a major missing element because if you're going to have these neat little areas that you can put a pin that's so interesting, then you've got to allow players or tempt players to find an angle into them. Now, I would say that we just cited an example where a player did try to go at a tucked pin, Rory on the second hole on the last day. And so 
he was successfully baited into it. But I think you're right that in general, players aren't going to be going after those pins necessarily. I think it's still interesting to have them, though, just to have them available. Important to note, that was one of the softest days. And and I I agree. Look, I'm with you on, I thought the green expansions were awesome. We just have to expand the playing corridors a little bit. And Mm -hmm. you need to have the opportunity to hit the fairway to actually realize the, the or to to be able to appreciate the benefits of some of that green expansion. Yeah, I agree. Um, a couple of other positives that I had were the bunker faces. You know, they're neat looking. I like them aesthetically. And they also came into play consistently this week. They were pretty punishing. And I'm not saying that the bunkers were a terrible place to be this week <laughs> because, you know, the sand is the same sand you see everywhere else and the players know how to play out of it. And that's just the way it is. But we did see a little bit of complexity with those bunker faces on a few occasions where players got stuck on them or really had to get the ball up quickly. And so avoiding the bunkers was pretty important this week, at least more so than it would be at most PGA tour venues. So, you know, I appreciated how those came into play a couple of times. Now, obviously with that some of, with yeah. some of the balls getting stopped in the steep, grass faces of the bunkers like cameron smith had a really tricky one on saturday where it's like a, you're taking a baseball swing that's yep. that was a refreshing aesthetic and it's not something you see at every major championship venue so i agree with you i thought that was awesome yeah and it's an andrew green staple and so the more we see andrew green renovations the more i think we're going to see this style of bunker edge shaping Um, as well as those hummocks, right? I didn't see as much of those this week. And, you know, maybe because they were just sort of few and far between. All right, let's get to some of the critiques. You've already indicated, hinted at some of your dissatisfactions with the course. Let's start with the, the strategic question of wide misses versus slight misses and how Oak Hill might not really reward accuracy off the tee. Yeah, I think maybe trying to estimate some of the numbers here. I haven't had a chance to generate some of the data, but to give people a little bit of an inside look at that and why it's obvious what you need to do here. So I can already tell you like with near certainty what that data is going to look like when I do generate it. I think a slightly off-target miss will be penalized somewhere in the neighborhood of 035 to point four shots off of a shot that was in the fairway and a much wider miss will be like another eight hundredths of a shot, something very small. It's going to be almost identical if you just barely missed the fairway to if you were way off. And that's including all shots, regardless of whether you're blocked out by a tree, all shots just grouped together. So if you start to unpack that a little bit and understand, well, the fairways were nearly impossible to hit, Right. If I a shot that's in the rough unimpeded by trees, probably a penalty of closer to two tenths of a shot versus one that found the fairway, and it's nearly impossible to hit the fairway. They were so bouncy, and you're coming, you're hitting a 300 yard bullet. It's not going to stop until it goes into the rough. So why ever pull three wood or an iron off of the tee? And that's even further accentuated on dog legs where you're hitting a shot on an angle, like holes four, 17, and 18, where you basically have to land the ball in the rough and let it trickle onto the fairway. That was 
one of the only ways that those balls were staying in the fairways, especially on Thursday and Friday. So it just quickly becomes a dynamic of, all right, if there's no penalty hazards out there, I can miss wide. I'm just going to take an extremely aggressive swing with driver, try to get it in the fairway. And if not, let's make sure I have an unimpeded look at the green that's not blocked out by trees. That that was the dominant strategy. And that's why you see Bryson doing as well as he did. So uh, does that, does that make sense, Garrett? Some of the, maybe some of the numbers behind it and kind of why that. I mean, I I definitely know what you're saying. I, I want you to explain one aspect of it, which is you talked about how players, how, how the fairways were so firm that a driver would often just bounce through the fairway and not stop until it gets to rough because there's nothing to stop it. So why ever not hit driver? But somebody might argue, actually, if you hit a three iron or a three wood, maybe you'd have a better chance of stopping it in the fairway. So why why is that not a legitimate strategy in this case? Because the the fairways were so narrow and so firm that they were bouncing well into the air. I know you guys put out the clip of Joel Damon's tee shot on Thursday. What's stopping the golf ball? Like mm-hmm. the rough was what was stopping the golf ball. So if you can hit a three iron, but you're gonna have to hit it like some kind of high fade or something that maybe lands soft enough on Thursday and Friday to stay in the fairway. If you don't execute that, now you've got a long shot into the green from the rough. And that's where it becomes a massive problem. If you're Bryce, let's say you're Brooks and you've got would you rather have a six iron out of the rough into a firm green that might be elevated or would you rather have a nine iron? It makes a massive difference. So mm-hmm. you just can't pick apart a golf course like that with irons and, and three woods off the tee. Sometimes the exception to that is if it gets much narrower where the driver is, but it's much wider back where the iron shot would end up or the three wood. But that's not how this golf course was shaped. It was pretty much uniform width throughout. So particularly on the dog legs, it's just, you got a bash driver. So the logic, as I understand it, is this. You're going to be in the rough a certain percentage of the time, no matter what, whether you hit a three iron or a driver. So you might as well hit a driver. Furthermore, if you miss wide with a driver, you're often going to be in a place that's not any more punitive than missing the fairway slightly. Say you have a wide miss with a driver, that doesn't really hurt you so much at Oak Hill because those wide misses aren't that much worse than the narrow misses that a more accurate driver of the golf ball might have. And so if you're hitting three wood because you're trying to be more accurate, you're just sort of missing the point of the golf course. And so what is it about Oak Hill that makes wide misses not that big of a deal? The short answer is no penalties around the kind of the wide, the outer bounds of your dispersion mm-hmm. pattern. So if yeah, you com- have like compared a- to like a Florida golf course or a TPC sawgrass where, you know, wide misses exactly. are out of bounds or, or in a marsh or something. Yeah. And there's going to be some holes like that at LACC where there's fescue. And so maybe if you miss by a little bit, you're just in the rough, but if you miss wider, there's fescue there. Like there's sort of a gradients to, to the penalty. That was not true at Oak Hill. I think another thing, There are some subtle things to probably consider about a tree-lined golf course with with some sparse trees and not any additional features outside of those trees. Like hole six and seven are the counterpoints here. Those are like the only holes at Oak Hill that actually provided a little bit more of an accuracy test. But on most of the holes, it's just 
tree lined. And I think there are a couple small things that also aren't talked about that matter. For example, if you have a tree in front of you, the aerial option becomes much more feasible the less yardage you have in, the more you can hoist the ball up, right? Like if you have a tree, let's say 25 yards ahead of you, you might be able to get a wedge over it, but you're, you're not getting a seven iron over it. You're much less likely to get a seven iron over it. So there just become fewer and fewer advantages to laying back. Like Mm -hmm. your driver might also fly over some trees versus if you hit an iron or a three wood a little bit off the mark, it might hit a tree and come straight down. Like there are just these subtle things that also reward hitting a driver. So there, there just become fewer and fewer reasons to ever elect to get conservative off of the tee. And, and also Andrew Putnam called out that a lot of these areas where you had wide misses were trampled down by fans, which is true. And that's another reason why some of these wide misses were rewarded. I will say, I know for a fact at the Ryder cup in Paris in 2018, that was a consideration of team Europe. They did not want the fans trampling down where team USA was going to hit. They pushed them way back. That, that is absolutely a, a key feature of why this didn't penalize wide misses very much. And you got hospitality tents and stuff too. We don't need to get into a TIO discussion, but that's relevant <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. You get preserved from that as well. And so, yeah, I mean, there are a number of factors here conspiring to make wide misses, not that penal at Oak Hill. And another factor, this isn't true on every hole, but on a lot of holes, the tree removal strategy at Oak Hill, they removed a lot of trees, right? It, it used to be very tree choked. They removed quite a few trees, and there were many reasons for that aside from strategic. The health of the golf course is better. The health of the trees is better now that they have more room to grow. So I want to be clear about that. But the tree removal strategy that they pursued at Oak Hill created a situation where the trees that they left were ones that presumably guard or define the hole and are therefore kind of close to the fairway. But if you get farther away from the fairway, They removed a lot of trees over there. Those are big open areas. They look like lawns, right? Because it's just rough. It's just green, lush, maintained rough. And they removed a ton of trees in those areas. Presumably the thinking was, let's leave some of the trees that make the hole what it is and that have a immediate strategic influence on the whole corridor. But any trees that are back from the hole, we can just take those out, right? Well, when you get to a PGA championship and guys are hitting the ball as far as they do and as far offline as they do, sometimes they're going to find those areas that are just so far off the hole that I think the club figured they could take away those trees and it wouldn't make a difference. But it does make a difference because suddenly a lot of those wide misses are in open areas. And so you have that dynamic that you're talking about where you can just bash driver. That's where I think the Tory Pines comparison is yeah. appropriate here. Where if you've ever watched the the grounds of Tory Pines, like there's a lot of holes where just a lot of rough. If you miss by a foot or if you miss by thirty yards, so I do think people were comparing this to Beth Page winged foot. Appropriate, definitely appropriate comparisons, but had a little bit of Tory Pines in it too. And it's kind of what you're hitting on there. Some of those open spaces, if you just blast the ball, and again, that helps Bryson. He feels more comfortable when he can hit out into those areas. And if, Hey, if I miss way out, right? No, no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed very, uh, very comfortable this week, <laughs> very yeah. settled down. And so, yeah, that, that was, uh, had to, had to have been a factor. 
All right, one more quick break, and Joseph and I will be back with our storylines for the coming week in golf. Our next partner is Athletic Greens. I take AG1 by Athletic Greens literally every day. I gave AG1 a shot because I was just looking for a healthy way to start my day and get off on the right track. I take AG1 first thing in the morning, and it just gives me an immediate boost. It makes me feel energetic and healthy. I go and take my kids to the bus stop and get right to work. I started taking AG1 because I just noticed that my daily habits as a whole weren't the healthiest. And in the meantime, I was covering athletes like Brooks Kepka and Victor Hovland, who are supremely disciplined in taking care of their bodies. So I thought to myself, there's no reason I can't or shouldn't take a similar approach. And I've started making AG1 part of my daily routine, getting 75 high quality ingredients that set me up for long-term gut health support. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I was traveling recently, I brought my travel packs with me, and they were super, super convenient. Go to athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. That's athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. Storylines, Joseph, what are you tracking this week? It's got to be Block Watch, right? <laughs> I mean, sponsors exemption into Charles Schwab Challenge. Uh, Michael Block will be playing. So, you know, I was thinking about actually driving up. It's only like a few hour drive for me. I was no, thinking it's about, in your neighborhood. Yeah. I was thinking about driving up to watch on Saturday or Sunday, but I'd like to see Michael Block play. So maybe I'll change those plans to Friday. You can apologize in person. Uh, he's also yeah. going to be at the RBC Canadian Open. He's also gotten a sponsor exemption into that. I believe he can get seven right before he runs out. Yeah, but you know, Garrett, sometimes these rules can be rewritten. So I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if they extend that number to nine just to get him a couple more starts and MCs. Little, little, <laughs> a little bit of some MCs getting a dig in there. He is 46 years old. Michael Block is. Likely to be a menace on the senior tour. True. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe this week was just sort of a freak accident. He played out of his mind. But, you know, 40 years from now, Michael Block could be the new Stephen Alker. Do you think Stephen Alker, after he missed the cut this past weekend, was out watching Michael Block trying to scout? <laughs> trying to think. Maybe there will be a, a team format on the senior tour in the in the coming years. That'll be what revives the senior tour. And it can be uh, Michael Block and Stephen Alker versus the world. That'll be pretty good. Yeah, lots of storylines to track with Michael Block. I agree. It's it's very exciting. Uh, I want to see if he keeps the same hat, the hat that just says RAW in capital letters. Do you know what that means, by the way? I think anyone who buys a hat like that should basically go on a no-fly list. So I don't know what it means, and I'm not going to find out. All right. My storyline for the week is load management. I wrote about this a bit a couple of weeks ago. I just saw that after the Masters, a bunch of top players were talking about how tired they were. John Rahm, Scotty Scheffler, Roy McElroy, all spoke about being exhausted right around that time. The schedule for the PGA Tour in the first few months of the year is really, really packed. And so these guys started to wear down. 
Now, by the time they got to the PGA Championship, it seemed like at least Scheffler was fully back in form. I don't know. But you know who showed up looking really fresh and healthy was Bryson DeChambeau and Brooks Kepka. And they are obviously playing on live. And so I wonder if their success in majors is going to start to appeal a little bit to some players on the PGA Tour who are on the fence. I wonder if any of those players are going to start to say, there's something to this live idea. If Bryson and Brooks were able to go on this tour, get healthy, come back looking happy, contend in majors, win majors, maybe there's really something to the live tour. I think the rest, that's absolutely a valid storyline. I feel the same way I've always felt, which is that the top players on the PGA Tour should only be playing the designated events. They really shouldn't be trying to get them to some of these other events. I know that's a little bit of a paradigm shift from the way the tour currently operates, but I do believe that's the best model. I don't want to go too far down the look how well Liv is doing because I don't want to just cherry pick Brooks and Bryson. Also, Liv came from Orlando to the Masters. They're not they're playing less, but they are they are also traveling all around the world. It's, I don't think their schedule is necessarily perfect, but where I think this is going to be a huge issue for the PGA Tour is at Travelers, when these golfers are expected to go directly on the heels of a U.S. Open, completely across the country to the, to the Northeast. There will be grumblings, whether they're public or not, and I think you're absolutely right that those golfers will be thinking a little bit about schedule reform. So I don't know how much more attractive Liv gets. I mean, they're playing in Jeddah. They're playing in Australia. I know. The, the travel component is tough, but it seems like Liv has made that as easy as possible for him with these chartered flights and stuff like that. Definitely. And then it's just 54 whole tournaments that have no impact on their psyche as far as competitiveness is concerned. But I don't want to land on a world where we think the right solution is never playing competitive golf outside. I of agree. The majors. So it's bad for fans. I think that's where the impetus needs to be the onus needs to be on the PGA tour to create a schedule where the golfers aren't playing as much as they are this year. So again, in my mind, that's just the designated events. There's like 14 of them. And that's when we see the best golfers in the world, which is again, consistent with like an NFL schedule where you, you play 15 to 20 times a year. And this is something that Rory said was caught saying in the uh, full swing documentary, like maybe we've gotten a little soft. Every other sport requires athletes to be there at particular times. But the problem is you've got this competitor off to the side offering what appears to be right now, just kind of like a club med situation, (laughs) you know, an all inclusive resort. And, you know, I wouldn't have entirely believed that characterization of live until I saw Brooks and Bryson come back and look just like they've got a second lease on life. And maybe that's not something that's going to continue consistently. But I think if these guys keep showing up at majors, if Cameron Smith comes back at LACC and looks great and plays great, if Patrick Reed does the same thing, then there's going to be more and more evidence that the live guys are just a little better rested. And the PGA Tour is going to have to respond to that. I think it's very reasonable. And hopefully they can, the fall swing will be... Uh, not, not, they're not being a false swing that the top players are expected to play and will be a step in the right direction there. Yeah. All right. All right, Joseph, thank you for coming on the podcast. Talk to you again soon. Appreciate you having me, Garrett.
This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was produced and edited by Matt Rusius. Thank you, Matt. There are a couple of things that you can do to support the Fried Egg. One is to simply rate and review this podcast. We love hearing feedback from people, so please offer some of that if you can. Another thing that you can do is to join Club TFE. That's our membership program. Go to thefriedegg.com slash membership to see what we're offering there. All right. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon. Thank you.